US President Joe Biden unveils ambitious new climate goals at a virtual summit of world leaders at the White House. We'll assess how attainable they are. Has the appetite for celebrity politicians waned since Donald Trump's departure from the White House? We'll ask whether being famous in politics is a help or a hindrance. And why has the simple pleasure of the espresso become a cultural fault line in Italy? Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Thursday the 22nd of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And with us today to cast their expert eyes across some of the day's top news stories are our regular Thursday duo Carlotta Rabello and Henry Rees Sheridan. Henry, Carlotta, great to have you both with us once again on the show today. Uh, Carlotta, how's the week shaping up for you there in London? Hi Tom, it's actually been quite all right this week you know the sun is shining things are reopened even though we can only be outside but having sunshine always helps when you can only meet people outdoors uh, it feels slightly normal um going back to you know some of the shops that i haven't visited in over a year uh, went to rough trade one of my favorite record shops um on Tuesday and it was just really nice to be able to browse through some records um, and spend some time there. Uh, yeah, it's just been really, really nice. And here at Midori House, we've been quite busy uh, preparing you know, a variety of projects. Uh, and excitingly, um, we've been working uh, on The Urbanist, a show that I make every week with our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. We've been working on this series uh, looking at the Olympics. And we all know how... Um, tricky. It has been for Tokyo 2020. You know, as the name indicates, it did not happen last year, um, and it's um, earmarked for uh, later this year in July. And we've been speaking to several uh, people at the International Olympic Committee. That's coming up. Um, uh, episode one of a two-part episode later today at uh, 2000 London time. Well, look forward to giving that a listen, Carlotta and Henry. How about you? How's uh, New York treating you this week? Yeah, it's okay. Uh, what, what do you want the weather update? That's what you normally ask for. It's kind of been quite like a kind of British weather actually for the last week. Kind of weird, squally, grey skies punctuated by little bits of sun, which uh, is is alleviating my homesickness, but also prohibiting me from part- partaking in my my new hobby, which is uh, which is playing tennis on my own against uh, the handball court walls in my local park. Well, Henry, maybe we'll switch it to Henry's weekly sporting update. From here on in, Henry Reece Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, thanks very much to the two of you for being with us today. Well, in Washington, D.C. earlier today, U.S. President Joe Biden hosted a virtual summit of 40 of the world's leaders to set out an ambitious set of goals to combat climate change and to set a tone of international collaboration in doing so. Here's some of what President Biden had to say. No nation can solve this crisis on our own, as I know you all fully understand. All of us, all of us, and particularly those of us who represent the world's largest economies, we have to step up. You know, those that do take action and make bold investments in their people and clean energy future will win the good jobs of tomorrow and make their economies more resilient and more competitive. So let's run that race, win more, win more sustainable future than we have now overcome the existential crisis of our times. We know just how critically important that is, because scientists tell us 
that this is the decisive decade. And in that speech, President Biden vowed that the US would cut its greenhouse gas emissions by half by 2030. Well, on the briefing today, Deborah Seligson of Villanova University in Pennsylvania in the United States told us whether that hugely ambitious new target is attainable. It's doable. The big question is, can he pass his ambitious American Jobs Act legislation, the big infrastructure bill that would pour money into renewable options, green transportation, all the things that we have to do in the United States to change? The big insight that really started a few years ago that the way you would actually make change in the United States is by actually encouraging the business you want rather than penalizing the business you don't want. And by encouraging what you want, actually creating those political allies in the business community. I think that's key and it involves this heavy investment. We are fortunately at a moment where there's a larger constituency for that investment than there has been probably since the 1950s. Deborah Seligson of Villanova University speaking to us on today's edition of The Briefing. But as President Biden acknowledged himself, the geopolitics of climate change will also be a significant factor in any future manoeuvres in the area, as Kalina Orshakov at Politico Europe told us on today's edition of The Globalist. Many experts and observers say China might not see it in their biggest interest to announce this on a US platform. However, what is going to be interesting to see is whether they signal that they're going to do more. Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, yesterday in his national speech to the nation already indicated and signaled that climate change is going to be a bigger issue for the Russian administration and that there is ambition to go and do more. So perhaps we can see signals on that um, but uh, perhaps also the politics of, of, of or the geopolitics of climate may not suggest that some of the big leaders will announce new commitments, but just signal that they've listened to what the U.S. is saying, that they're waiting to see what the U.S. is doing, and then perhaps may follow suit. Kalina Orshakov there, who covers climate for Politico Europe, speaking to us on The Globalist a little earlier today. Um, Carlotta, uh, the summit uh, hosted by Joe Biden today was convened, it appears, relatively quickly. And in essence, it seems to me it's about creating momentum ahead of the UN's COP summit in Scotland a little later this year. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Tom. You know, the COP26 meeting is planned to go ahead in November in Glasgow. And this summit by, you know, uh, uh, championed by Joe Biden and his administration really is to, you know, help nudge other nations uh, to match or at least advance their climate targets and goals, particularly, uh, I believe, China and India, uh, to, you know, also put forward their, their own ambitious plans. Now, of course, um, there's a bit of scepticism, I'd say, around whether or not the US will be able to deliver the plan that Joe Biden committed to today. Um, we all know how fractured politics are is in the country at the moment. Um, and with the COP26 meeting, you know, just a few weeks ago, um, some people were still calling for the summit to be postponed, one of them including um, Greta Thunberg, um, saying that, you know, with everything that's happening with the pandemic and how it's not, you know, still safe around the world to travel safely, that it should be uh, uh, postponed until global vaccination rates have risen. Of course, a lot can change by November. And we do know that these summits work 
better when people can meet face to face. But yes, this uh, climate um, uh, summit that happened today really highlights um you know, I guess the return to science to the White House, just having a president recognizing it and, um, you know, trying to push other nations around the world to be a bit more ambitious about it. Um, it's just really nice to see. And, you know, we are now living uh, at a at a stage where, you know, it is important that every single country ups their goals. Um, Canada was one of them as well that said that from they'll go from 40 to 45 percent reduction in emissions by 2030. Uh, this is, of course, based on the 2005 levels. And, you know, it's all um, good news uh, to see these levels going up and uh, countries committing. And it's also great to see some credibility <laughs> to return to the US when it comes to leading um, the fight against climate change. And, you know, we can all remember when uh, the former president Donald Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement and how uh, shocking that was uh, to have a country of that importance um, remove themselves from this conversation and from these, this global effort to uh, make sure our planet continues to be a livable place. And that's what we need to remember here. That we're not just talking about, you know, goals to make because we are good people. It's literally about if this is not done and in a quick and speedy manner, this planet might not be... Um, inhabitable for many, many, for forever. And, and that's in a, in a recent future. And that is a scary thought if we, you know, take some time to actually think about that. And Henry, the idea of clout that Carlotta brought up there, Joe Biden is pushing the US's diplomatic weight in the area of climate change in a pretty significant way here. How effective do you think that's that's been so far? I think it's it's going to be as effective going forward as America remains powerful over the next century. I think we can we can anticipate uh, uh, a multipolar uh, global order emerging, particularly with the rise of China. Um, but, you know, so far, or up till now, America remains very much the world's superpower. I think it's very important that it provides moral leadership and perhaps also some sticks and carrots for uh, for nations which are smaller than it. In particular, it can be very influential there. In terms of its ability to influence larger uh, uh, re- regional superpowers and competitors around the world, like China and Russia, I think China's actually kind of got the jump on America when it comes to its own commitment to... Uh, to, to, to climate change, to tackling climate change rather than reducing greenhouse emissions. It's taken it seriously as a nation on a national level uh, for a long time now. And actually in November of last year, uh, President Xi Jinping pledged to uh, uh, basically for, for greenhouse gas emissions to peak by 2030 and, and reach net zero by 2060, which is very ambitious. Uh, Actually, going into this virtual summit and looking ahead to Glasgow, I think uh, considering the rigorous targets that they've set for themselves, the Chinese are are, are going to be loath to be seen to koto to uh, Washington's demands. And so they may be kind of trying to establish more of a leadership position themselves. The other big nation which um, 
uh, needs to be kind of uh, wrested into cooperation by America if, if the climate goals are going to be achieved is Russia, which hasn't set as rigorous, um, I suppose, uh, uh, climate goals for itself. Um, uh, Putin has said that he wants Russia's total net greenhouse gas emissions to be less than the European Union's over the next 30 years. Um, but I, I think that there's a, probably a slightly lower level of trust in um, in Putin's ability to uh, to um, to well ability and the, the political will within Russia to kind of execute that. Um, I think the plan that they're rolling out at this virtual conference uh, is, is called Green Moscow, which is limited to just obviously Moscow and uh, I think an increase trying to increase uh, electric vehicle use in that city. Um, but I, I, I think you know as is the case in any field of diplomacy, America is going to be able to kind of use sticks and carrots to influence players that are smaller than itself, but is going to be facing increasing uh, demands and challenges to its uh, to its authority from uh, uh, nations that see themselves as at least peers, if not uh, potential future world leaders. Well, next here on the late edition, perhaps there are some of us who'd thought or perhaps even hoped that the age of the celebrity politician was potentially on the wane, an appetite that had diminished in part with the departure of former US President Donald Trump from the White House in January. Well, recent opinion polls in the US suggest that the appetite might in fact be rising. So, Colotta, to start with you, if we look at these recent surveys in the US, does being famous do you think help or hinder one's political ambitions? Tom, I think it really depends on the circumstances. Uh, there's, of course, a huge debate going on uh, at the moment in California because uh, Caitlyn Jenner has been talking about the possibility of running uh, for a governor in the state. This is because there's a recall election happening later this year um, in the state. It's the second election, you know, ever uh, to happen, the second recall election to happen ever. And the last time this happened, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger defeated the incumbent uh, governor. Um, And in an interesting way, just a few weeks ago, he... uh, issued a warning to uh, the current governor, Gavin Newsom, basically saying that, you know, he sees today the same atmosphere that existed in 2003, you know, a historic election that was the very first recall election in the state, and that if he's not careful, he might lose it, and that the only way he could lose it is if a celebrity runs against him. Um, So maybe that's what has uh, prompted uh, Caitlyn Jenner to uh, start to put her name forward. And in the meantime, of course... There's been stories, Politico has a big story today about her voting record and how she basically has barely voted her entire life, including in the past governor gubernatorial elections. So uh, that's just one of the many. And simultaneously, we have um, uh, Matthew McConaughey, you know, saying that he might uh, go ahead and... Uh, run for governor in his home state of Texas. And actually, the latest polls uh, that came out show that he actually has some support back home. Um, And everyone always in these cases, because they're talking about running for governor, point to Arnold Schwarzenegger and how it was possible. And Carlotta, to stay with you, there's a mayoral race underway in London. And speaking of of 
famous people running for office. Lawrence Fox, the actor, is running a really kind of unusual and, and controversial campaign there. Oh, yes. And we had recent polling just a few uh, just a few hours ago that came out, actually, less than 24 hours ago. And Lawrence Fox, who has spent a lot of money in his campaign, it must be said, uh, uh, he, I think his party had raised five million pounds in donations, at least that's what he claimed. He has tied on one percent in the polls with someone ca- called Count Binface, uh, which um, he goes around dressed all in black and with a bin over his head, and he's running, um, you know, to clear out the trash in London and virtually spending zero money. And he is tied with Lawrence Fox. So that tells you, uh, I think that paints the picture and <laughs> no more words are needed, Tom. <laughs> Yes, it's a precarious business. And Henry, it isn't just the US or the UK where uh, celebrity politicians are potent, I suppose, even if their records are, in campaigning at least, a mix. The current president of Ukraine, of course, is a a former uh, TV comedian in Uganda. Bobby Wine, the the hugely popular musician there, uh, ran for president uh, late last year and into this year. Uh, But you brought up a really interesting idea a little before we came to air that's kind of interesting to look at political candidates who, who gain fame because of a bid for for elected office, very much like one of the apparent frontrunners in New York's mayoral race, which is currently underway in your city. Now, at the moment, I think the most prominent example of this is, as you mentioned, uh, or as you were hinting towards, Andrew Yang. He's a frontrunner in the New York mayoral race at the moment. He has no political experience whatsoever, uh, except for, of course, running in the 2020 Democratic presidential primary that basically created the conditions that made his mayoral bid viable, uh, running on the platform, the centrepiece of which was universal basic income. Now, before that, he doesn't even have a particularly distinguished private sector career. He founded a medium-sized non-profit called Venture for America, uh, whose mission was to create 100,000 jobs, apparently, that as of 2019, it's created fewer than 4,000. In spite despite this frankly quite middling journeyman background he is he is leading the race to become the mayor of arguably the most important city in the world um and i think that that's a remarkable state of affairs and an example of how liberal voters are no less susceptible to the kinds of uh uh, celebrity candidates or or, or, or candidate celebrities, whatever what you want to call them, than, than conservative voters are with, with Donald Trump. I mean, it will be really remarkable if he wins. I think with the blurring of the boundaries between, or with the elevation of unconventional uh, backgrounds across several sectors in society, I imagine that this trend is going to get more and more prominent. Well, finally here on the late edition, from fame in the political sphere to fame in the world of food and drink. And Carlotta, let's look at a story that caught your eye in Italy, where the simple espresso has found itself on something of a fault line running between national and regional pride. Yes, so Italy had announced uh, a few months ago that they were planning to, you know, uh, send a list of uh, things that they would ask the UNESCO to recognise as intangible culture. And the espresso, the humble shot of espresso, uh, was one of them. But now in Italy, there's this whole uh, debate whether it is just, you know, a countrywide thing 
or if it should be a, uh, from Naples. So the, uh, Napolitanians are asking for the recognition uh, of the region, uh, saying that you know their espresso is different and it should be uh, singled out, and that is part of the Neapolitan culture, uh, which is quite uh, interesting. I don't know if any of you have particular takes on espresso. I've, I mean, looking at my travels throughout Italy, which have included Naples, I cannot say that I particularly found a difference between them. I myself coming from a a country that drinks espresso every single day, that is being Portugal. There's definitely a difference between the Portuguese and the Italian espresso, um, but I could not spot one um, uh, between the regions. So I I just find it interesting, you know, that uh, this uh, Italy is asking, you know, uh, that the, the Italian espresso as a ritual almost, um, becomes, you know, intangible cultural heritage of humanity for UNESCO. And, um, you know, how do you even determine what that uh, that entails? My take on this is that often, well, I mean, let's take the example of Italian espresso. Does it need recognition? Does it need protection? I don't think anyone's under the illusion that espresso isn't fundamentally Italian in origin. I don't think that the espresso industry is at risk of collapsing anytime soon or or yet needs protecting in any way, culturally or financially. I frankly find the elevation of incredibly famous, booming cultural products to, uh, well, the, the, the nomination, nominating those things to receive protection from intergovernmental organisations. I find that quite bizarre. I think when so many... As I've mentioned before, languages and cultural practices really are, you know, going extinct and are endangered across the world. I think that's where the attention should be focused. I, 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 I think that protecting the espresso should be near the bottom of the list of global priorities, quite frankly. I just want to jump in just to say share a stat with the with the two of you. So the Istituto Espresso Italiano, the Italian Espresso Institute, yes, it does exist, says that on average there's three billion cups of espresso per day being poured in Italy. That is quite insane. Uh, you know, when you think about that number, it's a lot of coffee. It is a lot of coffee. And Henry, just in defence of the the famous food item, I mentioned the baguette earlier, in their submission, France's Ministry of Culture said that actually uh, since 1970, I think, only about 35,000 baguettes had been made by smaller and local uh, bakehouses that actually was the big big sort of multinational bakeries that had had taken over the industry and that getting it on the UNESCO uh, intangible heritage list would perhaps be a spur uh, to local neighbourhood bakeries once again. But I'm sure we will return to the issue of intangible culture at another point here on the late edition. But for now, Henry Rees Sheridan and Carlotta Rabello, a big thank you to the two of you, as always, for being with us on the programme today. Uh, That is all we have time for for today's show. It was edited in London by Louis Allen. A big thanks to him, as always, too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But as Carlotta mentioned at the beginning, of the programme, uh, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Urbanist, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.